Doesn't that make you just want to jump up and run? All hail King Jesus. My prayer is that we all know that today that he is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise, and that we would bow in submission to the Lord of heaven and earth. There's no one greater. There's no one above our Lord, our King. We're going to be in Exodus 17 this morning. We're going to do a few flashbacks, so if you have your Bible, you can put a tab on Exodus 3, Exodus 5, and we're going to do a little bit of jumping back and going forward. We've been in Exodus now since January. If you're new with us, you can look back over the recordings and, and catch up. If you've been with us for a while, uh, we want to jog our memory some because the book of Exodus wasn't written in segments. It was written as one story, and time would not allow us to work from the beginning to the end of the letter in one sitting. So we're taking segments of it, but we want to remember from the beginning and to the end. So we'll be uh, looking to jog our memories. But if you haven't, it'd be good to just read this week Exodus 1 through 17. Uh, refresh the memory. It'll take you maybe 30 minutes, uh, but it'll be well worth your time. I'm excited about what God has for us this morning. That song pretty much captured the sermon, so I'm looking forward to seeing what God has for us today. Before we jump into the Word, I ask that you would pray for me and pray with me. Father, we're grateful that you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, would choose to use people to do your great work. We acknowledge you as holy, righteous, just. And so on this morning, as we look to dive into your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would meet us at the point of our need, that you would speak a word that would encourage, exhort, that would correct, rebuke, charge, challenge, that would help us to see you rightly and respond rightly to you. And it's only because we trust that you can and we believe that you will that we're right here, right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Exodus 17 starting at verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, 
I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord, and it's good all by itself. The children of Israel have exited Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. They came to a place called Mara, which means bitter because the water was not drinkable. And God made the water sweet. And then they had some issue with a food shortage. And God miraculously provided manna from heaven. And now the children of Israel are moving on through the wilderness, making their way for the land that God has promised them. And they come to a place called Rephidim, where they find no water. And the people of God begin to quarrel with Moses, wanting Moses to solve this water shortage problem. And Moses reminds the people of who God is and asks the question, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And we see what the testing was over in verse 7b. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The Lord, Yahweh, the personal name of God. Now, in order to understand how this question was considered questioning, we'd have to remember what the name of the Lord means and why the Lord gave this personal name to his people to call him by. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses was on the mountain Horeb, and he was speaking with the Lord, and the Lord was sending Moses to Egypt. But Moses had a question. 
if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is my name forever, Yahweh, which sounds like the Hebrew word I am. Now, again, if you scroll back about three months ago, we unpacked a little bit about what the name I am Yahweh means. And so I'm just going to summarize it and not unpack it. But what we came to understand is that Yahweh is letting us know that God is the eternally existent, personally present, all-powerful God who makes good on his promises. And the Lord gave this personal name for his people to call him by. You don't have to call me some distant and far off being. You don't have to call me the, the God who we have come to know, the God of those people. No, he said, this is my name, personal, because I'm present with you, Yahweh. And I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This word remembered can also be translated memorial. So my name is what God is saying is to be a jogging of your memory. That when you call Yahweh, you might remember that the eternally existent, personally present, all-powerful God who makes good on his promises is with you right here, right now. And so for the children of Israel to say, is Yahweh, the personally present God, present with us or not? They're questioning his character. In other words, we might phrase it this way. If God is present, why am I dealing with these problems? What is God going to do about this? So it's not even can he solve it. It's why am I even going through it? And God has a solution for this problem. After Moses looking to jog their memory and the children of Israel not taking it, it says, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So in other words, after reminding them of who God is and what he's done, like, listen, forget all that. We're thirsty. That was cool back then. No, yeah, I like the sea parting and, and the bitter water being sweet, but we need water right now. They weren't remembering. Who was with them? See, the problem could be seen to be the fact that there was no water in Rephidim. But the real problem was that the people of God were not remembering who God is and what he has done. They were seeing their problems being bigger than Yahweh. The eternally existent, personally present, all-powerful God is well able to perform his promises. So the Lord speaks to Moses because Moses cries out to the Lord because Moses knows I have absolutely nothing for you today. I mean, there's not even a log to throw in water. I have no, it's just dry. 
out here. There's no water. And God gives Moses some direction. Verse 5, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, in order to understand the significance of the staff and what God was looking to do in solving this problem this particular way, we'd have to go back to Exodus Chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. I'm not going to go through it all. I'm just going to summarize it real quick again. We've been walking through it for months. So you can go back and catch some of the, the sermons that unpacked it in more detail. But Moses, after having a conversation with God in Exodus chapter 4, he's leaving the mountain now to go and do what God had called him to do. Chapter 4, verse 17. But God tells him, I don't want you to leave here empty-handed. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So here Moses is a shepherd, and it's not uncommon. It's actually very commonplace for a shepherd to have a staff. It's not just a stick for walking. It's a stick for beating some animals off, and it's a stick for bringing sheep back into the fold. So this is a very uh, purposeful tool. And the Lord is telling Moses, I want you to take that tool with you, and it's with that staff that I'm going to do these signs in Egypt. So Moses goes on to Egypt. Moses has a conversation with Pharaoh, letting him know what the God of the Israel people want him to do. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is this Yahweh? I don't know him. I don't have a personal relationship with him. I don't acknowledge him as the authority in my life, so I will not meet his demands. Get out of here. Moses gets out of there. And again, you can go ahead and read over chapter 5 and 6 and see how things play out. Moses ends up having an audience with Pharaoh again in chapter 7. He uses the staff. It turns into a snake. Pharaoh still doesn't want to listen. So now we get to chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. With this staff in my hand, I'm going to strike the Nile. It's going to turn into blood, and you will know that the God of the Hebrews is the Lord. The eternally existent, personally present, all-powerful God who's able to make good on his promises. You want to know who he is? Hold on one moment. Watch this. 
Answer your question? Good. Pharaoh was questioning the authority of God. And God used this moment with the staff and the striking of the Nile to answer Pharaoh's question. I am the Lord. And now here, fast forward to chapter 17, and God is telling Moses, take that same staff and go up to Horeb, which means dry or desolate. Go up to the mountain of God. Again, this is the same mountain back in Exodus chapter 3 with the burning bush. So Moses has no questions. I talked to a bush on that mountain. I know that it means dry and desolate. But clearly, if a bush can be on fire but not burning and I have a conversation with it, you can make water come out of rock. Here we go. I'm grabbing my staff and we're going up on this mountain. But what God is doing by telling Moses to take the staff, he's answering the question that the people of Israel had, just like he used the staff as a symbol to answer the question The Pharaoh had. Is Yahweh among us or not? The answer. Any questions? Water. And I mean, come on. Just for two seconds. Act like you're absolutely amazed. Water coming from a rock in a desert that has no water. Anybody else mind blown? I mean, I know you read the story a few times like, yeah, and the water came out. No water, people, in the desert. No water there at all. That is a mind-blowing miracle. God is letting his people know that I am the Lord. And he's proving that he's able to meet the needs of his people. And how gracious and merciful. He did not cut them off. He did not kill them. He said, you're questioning my character. Let me show you who I am. People ask the question, if God is real, why is there evil in the world? It's because God is gracious that there's evil in the world. If God desired to, he created pure perfection. No sin. It was man who made that mess. And God in his grace and his mercy actively enters in to clean up the mess. He's not the originator of sin, death, and the grave. He created life abundantly. The fact that there's evil still in the world is just a demonstration that God is gracious and he hasn't wiped everybody out. His grace. And he demonstrates this over and over again. He shows it to his people. You're questioning my character? Let me show you. I'm reliable. You can trust me. And now water flows from a dry and desolate place to provide for the needs of over two million people. Oh, you are God and God alone. The people of Israel, their thirst is quenched because God graciously demonstrates that he's reliable. You can trust him. And after this, one might think, well, the story, great. Now they walk on over to the promised land and conquer and live happily ever after. But they didn't even leave Rephidim before they were introduced to another problem. They went from no water to water to now experiencing war. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. 
Now, time won't allow me to go through and unpack ancient Near East literature and how we need to remember that this is not 21st century autobiography or biography. This is written in such a way where, again, it's all coming together to tell one story. So Moses doesn't divorce the fact that the people responded to war in a particular way before, and we talked about that previously, and he's not divorcing from the fact that he cries out to God for everything. But if you read through it, you think, oh, well, the people were fine and that Moses didn't cry out, but that's understood. The people are not ready for war. We've seen that over and over again. So it wasn't like all of a sudden Amalek comes and they're like, oh, cool, all right, well, we saw the water thing and now we're ready for war. No, the people would not have responded any differently than they have previously. And Moses would have responded the same way that he had done. Lord, we need you. What's the game plan? And so Moses just jumps right in and tells us what the Lord had told him the game plan was for fighting the people of Amalek. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now again. I'm just trying to process this as a human because that's what I am. I'm thinking to myself, we have never been to war before. And your strategy is to go on top of a hill and hold up a stick. And what's supposed to happen, Moses? Like we're supposed to swing swords? Like what? That's the strategy? Yes. And the scriptures say Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Why? Why would you do that, Joshua? See, because Joshua would have been one of the elders that went with Moses on to Horeb to see the stick strike the rock and water come out. And now Joshua, hey, listen, if it could do that, you so you're going to hold this staff. You're talking about the staff of God. You're going to hold that up. All right. Now, as long as you're holding the staff of God up, I'm going. That's a great strategy when you've seen God be faithful over and over again. So I just want to remind you real quick, Joshua, remember, we were in Egypt. We had no means of getting out. The Lord delivered us. Ten plagues. We walked through dry ground. We saw the Lord smushulate the Egyptians. Okay, you had to be here before. And then we saw God provide for us in Mara. And then we saw God provide for us manna. Now we saw God provide water from a rock with a stick. I'm holding this stick up. This is a bad stick, isn't it? As long as you're doing that, we can go and we can fight. See, now we see in the word, Moses says, this is the staff of God in his hand. This staff is a symbol to remind the people of something that they had continually forgotten, that the eternally existent, personally present, all-powerful God who's well able to perform his promises is right here, right now. And when you have the staff of God in your hand, Amalek about to go ahead and lay on down. It's going to be a bad day for the enemy. So Joshua is willing to go. And this is what the word lets us know all so well. I mean, if we can process this a little bit, then the psalm becomes just a little bit more real. Psalm 23, we're familiar with it. But if we don't remember who God is and what he's done, we'll just gloss over it. The staff of God, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk 
through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I'm going through a really bad spot, the death valley, I will not fear evil. Why not? Because the death valley is like romper room? No, did anybody remember romper room? Because the death valley is a nice and cozy place? Absolutely not. It's because you are with me. You're present. The eternally existent, personally present, all-powerful God is with me. I will not fear. Not because the valley of the shadow of death has the wrong name. It's got the right name, but I've got the right God. And my God has his rod and his staff in his hand, and that brings me comfort. It's not just the staff and the rod by themselves. If I put a stick and lay it on the floor, you're not going to look and say, oh, well, the stick is there. No. It's just a stick on the floor. But that stick in the hand of your shepherd, that's going to bring you a little bit of comfort. Now, I know something's trying to get me, but my shepherd's here with his stick. And I've seen how he wields that. Have you ever seen him wield that stick? Picture it like my mother wielding a switch. You're going to feel a little bit different today. Sit down. I'm so glad my shepherd has his staff in his hand because you're not coming in my space. It's like a kid on the playground. I feel so old because I've said the last two references and y'all are like a romper room. But every kid can identify with this. You know when somebody's picking on you and you got the teacher like, and you just start making faces like nanny, nanny. Be like, you can't hit me. Nobody else. Good night. I just need you to engage with me just a little bit, people. Like, this is not a one-way street. This is a conversation. You could smile. You could give me a wave. Are you in the room? <laughs> All right. Thank you. You know, but here's like just, you can't touch me. Why? You're in the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah, but my shepherd's between you and me. You can't touch me. Because you have to go through my shepherd to get to me. This is what the staff of God brings into the life of the one who knows their shepherd. So Joshua, hearing from Moses, you going to go on a hill with the staff of God? Huh. Well, let's go. <laughs> Amalek, I bet you can't touch me now. What you going to do? Right? That gives you some boldness because you know that your God is reliable. See, when you've come to experience him in a very real way, then you start to respond differently to the rough places that you find yourself in. No water, not shaking. War, I'm not scared. But not because I got it figured out. My shepherd is with me. And he's got his staff in his hand. There's a whole other sermon that I like to preach from Joshua or from Moses' exodus. Chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. Time will not permit me. But just to tease it out ever so slightly, how beautiful is it that though God gives Moses this instruction and this plan, we see Moses is not a superhero. Aaron and her are partnering with him. And Moses gets a little bit tired. And, your arm starts, and then he has his team with him. God doesn't mean that we figure that thing. I got a word from God and where the people that God has partnering with you to see that word come to pass. There are no lone rangers in this family. Moses has Aaron and her and Joshua out on the front lines. And with the staff of God, direction from the Lord, they experience victory over their enemy. God once again 
demonstrates that he's faithful. He's reliable. You can trust him. And so now the Lord continuing to instill this confidence in his people, the people who question whether or not he was able to solve their problems. He's proving himself over and over and over again. God now tells Moses what he needs to do for Joshua to continue to instill this confidence in him. And what I love about how this passage goes is that God does not tell Moses to give Joshua the staff. He says, hey, the staff, that's, that's where this is the secret sauce. It's in the stick. As long as you got the staff, you're good. No. That was just a symbol that God used. That symbol does not replace God and his word. And so God tells Moses to do something to continue to instill this confidence in Joshua and in the people of God. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This word translated memorial comes from a Hebrew word, the same Hebrew word that the word translated remember that we read in Exodus for Jesus' name or Yahweh's name to be remembered, to be memorialized. The same thought is happening here. The Lord is telling Moses to write this, what has happened, what he has experienced, what he has seen, write of my faithfulness, write of my reliability, write it in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Remember this. It's a beautiful play on words. Remember that your enemy will be remembered no more. Why? Because of who I am and what I said I'm going to do. After showing that he's faithful and answering the question, is the Lord among us or not? I am right here. And I'm well able. Water in a dry place. And then war comes. And Joshua didn't win it. Moses didn't win it. Aaron and Hur didn't win it on their own. Everyone knows at the end of that day, there was only one who was going to get the glory. All hail King Jesus. God did that. And now as we continue on, I want you to know as you leave this place, remember what I've done. Remember who I am. And know that I am going to finish the good work that I began. Write it and recite it. Don't forget that I am God and I will make good on my promise. And God is doing the same thing today. God still is letting us know that we can trust him, that he's reliable. We have what some might even call, and I would argue rightfully so, greater symbols. We have a cross and an empty tomb to remind us that God is reliable. When there was no way that this problem could be solved, we are in the middle of a desert. It's not, hey, y'all, if we just dig a little bit deeper and get to the bottom, we might find water. No, we're in the desert. Why are you digging? There's no possible way that we have a solution for this problem. But we've got God. There's no possible way that we have a solution for this problem called sin. 
but we've got a Savior who's able to wash our sins away, who meets us in the dry places, in our Rephidim, that rough place, no water and war, and the Lord shows up and reminds us, I'm right here with you. We have greater symbols to remind us of who he is. And the Lord lets us know that we can hold on to these truths. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. This was uh, when John, the apostle, the apostle that Jesus loves, he refers to himself, was on the Isle of Patmos. He was imprisoned. He said on the Lord's day he had vision and he saw Jesus in all of his glory and it caused him to just fall out on his face. He's describing what he saw and what the Lord had heard. Verse 17 through 19. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Just passed out. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Listen. May these words comfort you. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. I am. This is the same kind of communication when the Lord says in Exodus 3, I am who I am. I am the first and the last. The beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the eternally existent, personally present, all-powerful God. And I have defeated death and Hades. I have the keys. I'm in control. I am the authority. I'm reliable. You can trust me. And here's the proof. The cross couldn't hold me and the grave was laughable at best. It wasn't even a chance. It wasn't no pause to see what's going to happen. I already knew what was going to happen before I went to the cross. I am victorious over the dry places in your life. And may that bring you comfort to know that I am reliable. And so then the Lord tells John to write this down. Write down what came before and what is to come. It's the same thing that he told Moses to do. Write and recite this as a memorial. Remember what I've done and what I've promised to do. And so now you read through the revelation and you're going to find yourself like, okay, what is that and how is that? And that's okay. It's a lot in there to unpack. It's a prophetic writing. But if we fast forward a little bit to Revelation 21, as John is closing out his letter, he's talking about that which is to come. Write and recite it. I'm going to make good on it. Just like the Lord says, I'm going to blot out, wipe out from memory your enemy. The Lord, write and recite this, John. And then John writes, I was going to read a little less, but I feel like I need to read a little bit more. So we're going to start at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Remember, he's on an island as a prisoner. What a beautiful sight. To bring great comfort to the children of God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Listen, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. No question. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You thought Horeb was cool. Wait until you see the living water that comes out of me and pours over your life. This is what the Lord says to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I will give from myself, in other words, free of charge. No admission. I paid the price already. Remember the symbol. I'm good for it. You're thirsty? Come to me and I will give you drink. Rephidim is not a rough place for God. He can meet us in our dry places and give us water that will quench our thirst. Like the woman at the well. If you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't ask me for water. You wouldn't ask if you can give me water. You would ask me to give you water. Where's your bucket? I'm the water. That's what Jesus is saying. He is the well of life. And he gives himself freely. He says, write this down. It is done. Why? Because of who I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am. I always have been. I always will be. You can trust me. Now, what do you do when you grab a hold of this truth? How do you respond when you know that your God is reliable? James chapter 5, verse 7. We'll read through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, gender neutral, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. That day that John wrote about this guaranteed to happen. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. What James is saying, and and Paul would say the same thing, don't get weary in doing well. Why? Because it's not hard? Because there aren't some rough places? No, because God made a promise. Be patient 
until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord's return is imminent. It's guaranteed he's coming back. So establish your hearts. Be rooted and grounded. Don't allow the dry places or war to cause you to be shaken. Don't allow what you're going through to cause you to question the God who goes through with you. If God is here, why am I going through this? No, because God is here, I can go through this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear any evil because God is here. He's got a staff. And I've seen him provide. I've seen him take care. So God, there's nothing else that you need to do for me. I trust you. You've proven that you're reliable over and over again. And that changes the way that I respond to my environment around me. And may that challenge us all today. Because we know these passages, many of us. Psalm 23 is probably one of the first passages that you memorize maybe. But how quickly we can forget. After coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, finding sweet water or bitter water turned to sweet water, seeing manna from heaven, the moment we get to Rephidim, whatever your Rephidim may be, no water and in a dry place, too often we look and we wonder, is the Lord among us or not? You see, I like to say that I laughed at Israel. And their response, but I couldn't because I see Israel and I can see myself. He's done too much. And yet the moment one thing goes a slight bit sideways, it's like, why am I going through this? Hold on. He saved you from sin. It's as though God is my puppet. And if he doesn't perform exactly how I want him to, then I question his character. Remember the cross and the empty tomb. See, the problem with Israel is the same problem with you and me. It's not the dry place. It's not the war. It's our inability to recall who God is and what he's done. If we do not remember that God is reliable, then the dry place looks bigger than God. No water? Ah. Now I'm throwing a temper tantrum. Why, God, did you bring me out here? Because I love you, and I'm growing you in my glory. War, did you bring us out here to die? I brought you out here. Right, and again, Israel, so silly Israelites. Do you not see yourself there? And God graciously, lovingly, Go grab my staff, and not to beat you, but to remind you, I am God, and you can stand on my word. I've got you, and I will see you through. And with all that was in chapter 17, Lord, what is it that we need to walk from here with? Remember. Remember who he is and what he's done. I want to invite the praise team to come back up. There are a couple of things that I want us to sit with as we prepare to pray. 
<clears throat> one challenge. You don't have to take it. This is not going to be the determining factor if you go on to see Jesus. But I would encourage you to at least wrestle with the thought. If you believe that God is sovereign and that you're not here by accident. One encouragement that was on my heart, and I'm not even a journaler, so I know that this had to be from the Lord. Write and recite. You, today, spend a little time writing down, remembering what God has done for you. And then recite that. Remember who he is and what he's done. And when you start to do that, I'm certain it's not going to change the place that you may find yourself, but it'll change your perspective. This is the valley of the shadow of death, and it still looks just like Death Valley. But I look to the hills. From where does my help come? From beyond the hills. My help come from the Lord. And he's personally present. We have to remember. If we don't remember, this is not going to blow your mind, but it needs to be said. If we do not remember, we forget. And God can be right here. And I'm so close to the well, but I'm not looking to drink because I'm distracted by the dry places. People of God, if you're in this room, this is for you today. Because this is for me today too. The Lord continues to graciously demonstrate to us that he's reliable. And he's going to continue to do that because that's who he is. But if we do not remember, even though he's reliable, we're going to be shaken. So one question for you to take to the Lord in prayer. What is it that's become bigger? What's the dry place? See, the beautiful part of the story, again, and I can't unpack it all, but Horeb is the mountain of God. That's where Moses met him in Exodus 3. And that's where we're going to see the children of Israel when they go to Mount Sinai. That's Mount Horeb. Here are stones throw away. So close. But yet, because we ignore, we're so far away. What is it that's become a distraction in our lives? And please, please, I pray that this doesn't just, you don't just push this by. I've been sitting in this all week, and I've had a few things that I could write down that I needed to give over to God. I pray that you'd be willing to wrestle with that today. What's the distraction? What in Rephidim is causing you to not realize that your Redeemer is here? He's proven that he's reliable. He has the keys to death in Hades. And he promises that he's coming back. No shame or guilt. If you're thirsty, the water is here for you today. You just have to be willing to drink from the well. For a few minutes, I want to go before the throne of grace. You and Jesus, if you need to sit, great, stay seated. If you need to kneel, kneel. If you need to stand, you and Jesus, very personal, very intimate. 
the eternally existent, personally present God is here for you. I pray that you'll talk to him for a few minutes, and then I'll close our time in prayer.